Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, historian of France and general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, which was so long ago that the bubonic plague was rife in London. Yes, I think you, you were Edward III, or was it Chaucer? <laughs> uh, so today we are discussing... Um, we are finally discussing the much-promised Laura Dodsworth, A State of Fear, a remarkably, well, actually, I'm going to quote you, Tom. It really is a spectacularly stupid book. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, it is. it was a huge talking point. It managed to become a Sunday Times bestseller. And its sort of subheading is how the UK government weaponized fear during the COVID-19 pandemic. So just to give a sense of how divisive this book is, uh, David Aronovich called it outrageously dumb, which is a little bit like my spectacularly stupid, but it has had endorsements from people like Neil Oliver and indeed that great skeptic of lockdowns, Lord Sumption. Uh, and Jonathan Sumption writes, this is an important book. The use of fear as a tool of political management is a major challenge to democracy, which everyone should reflect upon, whatever their view about lockdowns and COVID-19. Um, Zoe, do you want to add just a couple of words about who Laura Dodsworth is? Because it's quite an unusual departure for her. Well, I mean, she seems to have made her living so far as a photographer, basically chronicling the, the naked bodies of women. She's the author of books called Bare Reality, 100 Women, Their Breasts, Their Stories, Manhood, <laughs> The Bare Reality, and Womanhood, The Bare Reality. Um, <laughs> She and this one, Womanhood, were apparently also the subject of a documentary for Channel 4 called A Hundred Vaginas. So it's quite interesting to think, okay, she's gone from A Hundred Vaginas to A Hundred Insane Conspiracy <laughs> Theories about Fear and the State. I mean, I think you know, when you say that the likes of Jonathan Sumption clamber on this, it just highlights how unpredictable the way people are going to go on this topic is and how, how disappointing that formerly respectable, rational you know, fairly wise people basically get seduced into what is really essentially just kind of conspiracy theory, you know. So, so Tom, do you want to just lead off with what the what the vibe of what she's doing is? <laughs> well, I will, I'll talk a little bit about the vibe. I should say for the record that I think I watched two of the hundred vaginas. I mean, that was about as much as I could handle on that Channel 4 documentary. But so what's this book doing? This book is suggesting that uh, COVID has been hideously exaggerated and manipulated by the government stroke media, and I think she's deliberately vague about who the villains in this story are. Is it about the state trying to claw back more power? Is it about the, the relationship between government and media where the media is simply trying to kind of boost sales in a very unprofessional, unrigorous way? But this sort of alliance of dark forces has conspired to pump the British population full of dread. Um, and so it's a rereading of the COVID crisis through the headlines, through the memes, through some of what was circulating on social media, through a kind of close analysis of Boris's body language during some of his press conferences, in order to make you think that this whole thing has been orchestrated as a kind of campaign of fear. Um, what do the authorities win out of this, you might ask? And I think it's very unclear. 
Uh, but she would suggest that this is all about the state trying to claw back new powers, gaining new ways of surveillance and control into our private lives, and that this is about creating a more submissive population. Um, does that seem a fair summary, Zoe? Yes, it does. And I think the, the thing I just didn't understand with all of these people is why do they think the government would care to put all that effort into into scaring people? I Again, as you say, I don't understand what they see as the upshot to that. In the Chinese case, you can see what the upshot is. You need to keep the system going and it relies on repression. It's a repressive regime, so it relies on control. That's not the case here. And I think that kind of leads us to the, the, the sort of original sin of her whole argument, which is the idea that somehow China has infected us or that mm. we are no different from China or, you know, the whole thing depends on kind of elisions of various things that are actually quite important. For instance, we are not a communist dictatorship. We are a liberal democracy. She's completely uninterested in that because she would just fold that idea of the liberal democracy back into a government machine of propaganda. So, um, so I, I think, yeah, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of basically what it's about, all these different sort of types of manipulation and fear. Um, I think, you know, what really struck both of us was, which is what they all do, and, and frankly, they do it at certain newspapers. They, they think that their statistics are some sort of real refutation of the statistics that the likes of Neil Ferguson are using. Um, and it's just like this bizarre use of numbers as, mm. oh, well, we're throwing out all of your numbers, but somehow our numbers, the secret numbers are the real numbers. And it, it just it, it's just quite chilling, actually. I think it's really problematic, her use of statistics. Um, and indeed, she talks about the media being unrigorous. If you were to kind of pour through her sources... Um, and look at what she's using as evidence. It really is very, very uh, slipshod. And um, she's put it together around, there are these sort of horrible vignettes where she tries to give you a glimpse of the psychology of your average Britain. And I remember giggling at the first one because she has a sort of 64 year old gritty firefighter who's been reduced to a kind of quivering wreck. I think he's a policeman. By the, by the, yeah. Oh, he's a policeman, sorry. Ex-policeman. He's an ex-policeman. Um, but that really sets the tone for these sort of compound you know, imaginary portraits of what fear has done to the British population that are all incredibly anecdotal. Many of her sources, as a result, are anonymous. These people who are giving their testimony are not actually willing to give their name to kind of describe what they've gone through. For someone who thinks that we're being manipulated, she herself is deeply interested in COD psychology. Um, so the book has got this funny, you know, um, tension in it between trying to diagnose the history of psychological manipulation and media manipulation, but then uses its own batch of, to me, COD psychology tools to do with, you know, looking at body language um, or talking about various forms of sort of behavioral psychiatry and psychology to try and explain what's going on. And um, the, the key thing to underline is this is a woman who made her fame writing and thinking about naked bodies and sexuality. And she takes pride in being an armchair observer of COVID. Um, this is a woman who doesn't interview scientists, it seems very much, isn't very interested in what virologists are saying. It's all about her versus the experts. Um, and I think in an era of a public health pandemic, it's just deeply irresponsible to pretend that what you've pieced together through some YouTube videos and some paranoid conversations should be refuting what's being said um, by the scientific authorities in the land. But then it's a, of a piece with her worldview, which is anti-expert, anti-elite. You know, it's part of that libertarian conspiratorial view that nobody 
should have authority, you know, in these matters other than her. Um, and I, I do think that's very troubling. And it's always troubling that the people who shout the loudest about lockdown are these sort of incredibly like well-to-do, you know, people that happen obviously not to have had bad COVID or something like that. And it's just so yeah. unself-aware. They, 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 but they don't, you know, they seem to just not mind that they are taking decisions. They're basically playing God um, for everyone else. I mean, one of the things that sh- that is always very quick to emerge in, in these kinds of arguments is that people are, you know, they get impatient with people's fear of death. Well, people are we're all going to die. Like, good job you for figuring it out in March, 2020. Well, you know, I, frankly, I don't want Laura Dodsworth deciding how and when I come to terms with death. You know, I don't, I, I think it's perfectly legitimate for <laughs> civilized nations in the first world to not only want to protect their health service, but also to allow people to feel that they can move around, you know, doing the basics without, thinking that they're going to catch a disease that that might sort of kill them off um so i i think this kind of arrogance really the hubris of these people mm. um talking about how you know talking with mock mockery about people's fear of death um as that, that thrown into everything else i think i think is just weird um mockery and, I think, and also callousness sorry yeah. Zoe, just to yeah. jump in there it's also that she's willing to write off those kind of covid casualties you know oh well some of them have got comorbidities most of yeah. them are over 60. I mean, yeah. it's a pretty heartless book, I have to say. It's quite vicious, especially because she published it, we should say, in May 2021, at which point, you know, there's 120,000 deaths that she, you know, seems completely unconcerned by. Yeah, more than the Blitz. And yet they always try to find a way of linking it to, you know, oh, actually the PCRs give false positives. And, you know, there's actually literally a bit in it about where she's clutching at straws about, how how like it's another sign of manipulation that the government hasn't given us the full figures on false positive PCRs or you know other kind of irrelevant things like the small number of people who went into hospital for something else but also happened to have advanced COVID at the same time you know or or just just yeah sort of just these sort of grasping at straws to minimize actual bo- piles of bodies and then the desire to assume that the NHS was was lying so is she now saying that the NHS and the government and you know it's all part of and media outlets are all operating on the same conspiracy um I think I mean that is essentially what she says I think what's what's kind of interesting about what she's doing in a terrible way is how the extent to which it reveals a particular mindset that has nothing to do with COVID at all, but actually is to do with lumping everything bad together, therefore revealing the, the the rotten state of her own thinking. So again, this thing of China, the use of the theorist Agamben to talk about states of exception and particularly um, uh, accursed people um, who are put in, in concentration camps in, in terrible places or references to Guantanamo. And suddenly she's sort of jumping from there to saying, well, of course, we weren't put in concentration camps, but we were stuck at home. And that is a kind of containment. The irony being that in, in China, they literally are put in a form of concentration camp because they are forced to have, uh, when you test positive for COVID, you're forced to go into a, a state-run facility and you're separated from your child. So, you know, again, the, the, the sort of, she just, this sort of hideous lack of awareness of how freaking lucky she is having, you know, sitting in her well-to-do Southeast London house, not, you know, able to stroll out whenever she wants, buy whatever she wants, write a book that makes her rich, no censorship whatsoever. 
Uh, it's it's just it's all kind of it's just sad. I think Tom, you used the word relativist hellhole, didn't you? Since nine eleven, <laughs> and do you want to say something about how she starts at having a go at Tony Blair and you know the tr- terrorism and prevent and it all seems to sort of go down rather a she she sort of starts to imply that like the the state calls one one man's terrorism is another man's feminism or you know that sort of equivalence. I think she lumps everything together, as you say, Zoe. And in, when I said relativist hull-hull, I suppose I was just thinking about how have we got to a position where this kind of conspiratorial thinking has become you know, so pervasive that this can be you know, hailed as a book of the year, for instance, in some quarters, whereas you know, we should just read it as a, as a really rather dishonest kind of rant. I think some of it is to do maybe with the fallout of 9-11. I mean, she, in her own argument, talks about how fear had been mobilized in the Cold War, you know, and she does the classic thing of talking about the growth of propaganda in the interwar period and then ways of thinking about the hidden powers of persuasion. You know, that famous Vance Packard book, you know, The Hidden Persuaders. Um, but really, I think this is to do with a kind of sense of complete bewilderment uh, in pockets of the left and pockets of the right um, in the wake of the Cold War and particularly in the wake of 9-11, where you can legitimise the idea of conspiracy and the idea that corporations and the media, always treated as a single homogenous form, the media, um, alluded to here at one point as the body bag corporation, the BBC, uh, and governments are somehow all in cahoots together. Um, and I think it's interesting that that worldview, as you say, you could find being aimed at you know, the, the Occupy movement, you know, the fear of the secret rulers of the world, the bankers, the businessmen, or it could be about kind of unaccountable politicians, or in this case, it's also to do somehow with public welfare being embedded in it as well. But it's the same mindset, like we the little people against some shadowy sinister force. You know, and for a while this was part of the fringes of politics, but I think through successive crises since 9-11, it's now becoming kind of a normalized political position. Um, and it stinks and it's really, really lazy thinking. Yeah, and, and not only that, but as you, you very amusingly, you know, refer to her ludicrous tone, I mean, there, there oh, is a ludicrous. Yeah. Well, do you, I mean, can we give some, can we give some examples of the ludicrous tone? So she yeah. says that clap for carers is Stalinist at one point. She's got no problem of reaching for that analogy. Uh, in yeah. the same way, as I say, uh, body bag corporation, she's talking oh, that, about that. That was something porn. she, she, she stole the body bag corporation from Alison Pearson. Pearson. Exactly. Yeah. Which again, it's interesting to see who are her authorities on these questions. Mm-hmm. One of the people that she chooses to interview is Dan Wooten. Um, who made his career writing about light entertainment and Hollywood gossip uh, on breakfast television and is now an anchorman at kind of G, um, GB News. But again, it's, you know, she's speaking to a certain kind of cohort of people, all of whom, I mean, none of whom have got any kind of real grounding in science or in politics, but are all willing to feel outraged about this attack on their liberty. And this is precisely at a time when our liberties maybe are under assault. And obviously this goes beyond what we're talking about, but a lot of these people who are most agitated about masks are not yes. the ones worried about the loss of freedom of movement or what's happening to peaceful protests necessarily. So I feel that the kind of where they, the hill that they're choosing to fight on yeah. is very peculiar. If you're genuinely worried about liberties, the idea that masks are the sort of are the essence of that problem seems downright perverse. I agree completely. Um, and the the it's it's nothing seems to map on to reality at all. It, everything seems to be some sort of bizarre, randomly chosen cipher for some huge kind of misunderstanding of, of everything. I mean, the sorts of people she, she 
talks to, she sort of dresses them up to sound respectable, but something like, when I spoke to Robert Dingwall, a professor of sociology who advises the government, I mean, literal sort of terrorist sympathizers advise the government, that doesn't necessarily engender respect. He told me he was convinced that masks had been introduced partly because they are, quote, a symbolic reminder that people are dangerous, the world is dangerous, and you might feel safer at home. They create a sense of threat and danger, and that social interaction might be something to be anxious about. So mandating masks could feed the fear. Um, he agreed that there was, quote, little scientific basis for masks, and that in his view, they were designed to make people compliant. Again, this obsession with Boris Johnson wants to make people compliant. I mean, that has just nothing to do with anything in his history. I think people, the, the sort of way that um, the concept of power has leaked out of academia mm. and actually been taken up by these idiots, uh, it, you know, it's so tiresome. You get, you get the obsession with power from the left. And you get the obsession with power from the right, but in a different way that they're, you know, manipulating, they want power, they want to use fear to make us obedient so that they can somehow have more power, which just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't add up to me. And I think that these, this idea that you can track everything from masks to little, little circles on the floor of Tesco, you know, to keep, remind you to keep two meters away. Oh, that's an example of like our brutal government, you know, wanting to surveil us and, and control us. Um, but in a way, these these people are quite boring to contemplate as well. I remember living in in East Germ in East Berlin and sort of trying to learn as much as I could about the GDR. And in the end, you realize that when people just repeat the same thing over and over again, you know, and they turn everything back into another example of of the underlying thing. In a way, there's there's a limit to what one can really how one can engage with it, don't you think? Yeah, and I think it, it struggles to make sense of reality. I mean, I do think the book feels quite dated. I mean, it came out, as I say, in May. And if you think that in the unlocking that's since taken place, we, we would be odd to say that Britons were so terrified that they struggled to embrace their new freedoms. You know, whereas we enter a period now where the government is having to introduce new restrictions or is deciding to introduce new restrictions, you know, if the population was so terrorized, you wouldn't expect the pushback that indeed we're going to see today. We're going to see a whole exactly. bunch of Tory back BMPs voting against Boris Johnson. So if this was an attempt to kind of hoodwink us all and brainwash us all, it hasn't worked. It patently hasn't worked. Um, and, you know, and those of us who are a bit worried about the next wave think it is a shame that people do not have more sense of solidarity with their fellow citizens. You know, mm -hmm. and the question about the scientific, you know, value of the mask is a thing that people will debate. But the mask for me, as a moral symbol, as something that acknowledges that there are vulnerable populations among us, that actually it's a courtesy that you pay to other people because you recognize that we do have a shared space. And, um, you know, I find, I find deeply disturbing that the mask is being spat on and being abandoned by so many people in so many contexts. Do you, do you think that there's something to do with sort of concepts of behavior and codes of conduct like gentlemanliness for instance to do with masks and do you think that these anti-mask people are actually just incredibly rude would that just be one way of putting it i mean if we if this was the 1860s uh do you think all gentlemen including in the tory party would be wearing a mask because they, it would be second nature to them to show some form of deference to everyone around them and you know you don't want to you know screw over a woman or a child by infecting them so you'd wear a mask whereas there's something perhaps in losing all of that code of conduct and the sense of delicacy to make a slight sacrifice, or at least show you're willing to do that for others around you. Um, you know, the, there's just, yeah, do you think this is just a sort of decline in, in manners in a way? 
for me, it's a decline in manners and it's a sign, I guess, of a sort of atomization um, that, you know, we've had this sort of public health crisis and actually the concept of the public itself is perhaps so eroded that people resent having to make concessions to it. Now, obviously, there are other problems with compliance related to the failure of the British government at the moment to look like they're enforcing their own rules. But again, even that whole political discussion suggests how wrongheaded this book is. You know, if, if this was an attempt by the state to gain leverage and moral authority, well, patently, nobody trusts the government to manage this well. You know, we haven't been sort of terrorized into thinking that our government is an infallible force or that, you know, that they necessarily are kind of master of events. And indeed, her own statistics show that. So this, you know, again, what she fears might happen bears no relationship to what actually is happening. And she can't tell those two things apart. It seems to me very muddled. Um, Zoe, but I think just to just to push a little further, because I think it is interesting what you're saying about, um, you know, senses of public and that we now have a kind of very vocal minority of people who online love this book. And I should say that looking for reviews today, I mean, I found one review, I think, or two reviews in mainstream papers. But where you find people going mad for it is on Amazon or on Goodreads or whatever, that there are clearly people for whom this is a kind of gospel. Um, Zoe, what does it mean or what does it say that this kind of book, even if it's on the margins of you know, intellectual journalism, is nonetheless attaining a huge kind of following? You know, what's I mean, happening to right wing opinion in this country? Well, it's interesting that we call it right wing opinion. I was going to actually ask you what you think of how this maps onto politics, um, mm. because she's take she's 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 having a go at uh, the most libertarian state. You know, well, it's it's a bit of a nanny state as well. But you know, she she seems to be very against Boris Johnson, um, but she would presumably be even more against a left-wing government because they'd be in favor of even more restrictions because throughout the entire thing he's been criticized for not being you know harsh enough so it's unclear to me where uh the politics um maps onto that um and you think of Piers Corbyn I guess as a footnote to that Zoe that yeah really some exactly of exactly so I think exactly and I think it's but in terms of what's that so I'm not sure that we can call it I think I think you're right I think a branch of the right wing has got badly confused um but I and GB and, News is at the heart of it. There, I say GB you know, News is a big part of it. People who've endorsed this book and who are having this conversation, it's partly these alternative media outlets who think that they're speaking yeah. against the authoritarianism or the wokery that's been accepted by the rest of society. Yeah. So exactly. So I suspected from the very beginning of COVID that all these people being anti-lockdown, um, anti-mask, everything else, had just got the wrong end of the stick. They were using a, 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 sh a chimera or a complete red herring to make an argument about a vanishing repressive you know regime that vanishing rights and a repressive regime that just simply wasn't happening it, it was it was a complete it was like they were bored and they just wanted to be as cool as china and pretend that we're we too are suffering under repressive you know repressive regime it just just wasn't it just wasn't the case so i think i think the right was very quick or aspects of the right were very very quick to, to leap onto that including you know, certain newspapers, uh, which shall remain nameless. And I found that quite disappointing because I think there's just zero value in that view. I mean, I can I can understand the costs of lockdown, but I mean, honestly, it's like human psychology means that you care about an immediate threat more than you care about 
adjacent threats that may or may not, you know, be measurable in the same way. You know, if, if there's an immediate threat to your life and to the life of large amounts of people and the hospital systems being overwhelmed, it just seems completely obvious to me you're going to have to prioritize that over like, you know, the, 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 the hit that High Street will take when it's nightclubs and kebab shops do less business. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, but I do wonder if, as, as you say, Tom, if, if this is actually part of a broader basket of, pl of cha political ch change in political sensibilities and collapse um, which you know you could link to Trump, you could link to um, also just the post 9-11, um, mm. as you say, relativism, but also on the left, because after, after all, it's something very weird about how she, you know, she's against prevent. I mean, that's a very hard left position to take, the idea that the government is manipulating Muslims. The war on terror. To control yeah. them, yeah, and that actually the war on terror is made up and that actually, as she puts in this book, Tony Blair's action, you know, foreign policy in Iraq directly led to attacks on British soil, which were then mobilized to create more fear. I find that if this is what is represented by right wing and libertarian opinion in this country, it sucks. Some people even say that they're watching Eric Zemmour in France and finding at least he's he's interesting. I haven't watched him out of kind of protest. But, you know, there is an argument to say that that we just do have a, a profoundly crap right. And that that's unfortunately the case since Thatcher, because obviously Thatcher was a period of genuine intellectual uh, firepower. Um, you could say that wasn't traditional Toryism, but there were still philosophers like Oakeshott and Hayek who were serious people. Um, and I don't think we've got anything like that whatsoever. What have we got? Jonathan Sumption, who, as far as I can tell, is a raging lunatic about not wanting to wear a mask. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, I think it's sad that, that we've come to the point where politics has imploded and collapsed onto the point of face coverings. I think, I suppose, in terms of what else we have, we have people like Jordan Peterson, of course. I mean, mm. it's, who is also fits into this kind of ulti-right position. Um, and then somebody we both know, Tim Stanley, auditioning as the new Roger Scruton. But that's, mm. a, that's a whole other conversation. I agree with you, Zoe, about the left-wing drift of this. And I suppose it's worth thinking that one of the big bestsellers in nonfiction last year um, was that Zuboff book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Uh -huh. um, and these anxieties about surveillance, as you say, mm. cut across the political divide. Yeah. Um, and I think it is interesting to think about the, the re how they kind of remake politics in that sense, that these positions weirdly kind of echo each other. Somebody else who put all those elements together very successfully um, at the start of the noughties was the filmmaker Adam Curtis. Mm. I don't know if you ever saw those documentaries on the BBC, things like The Power of Nightmares or she, Well, she refers to that. But he also tries to come up with this kind of rewriting of contemporary geopolitics on the basis of how forms of subjectivity and selfhood are being mobilized by the state, which is in hock with the media, which all goes mm. back to Afghanistan, which is to do with the war on oil. I mean, you know, that there is a fuel for this kind of thinking. And it worries me that fewer readers have the kind of rational um, analytical skills to be able to pick through it. You know, if you end up with a world where you've decided in advance that mainstream media isn't telling you the truth and is shutting you out, unfortunately, you are going to take your news from alternative sources. And one thing you said earlier, Zoe, that I think is dead right, is that this book is the child of both the war on terror, but also the explosion of social media where yeah. she, clearly Dodsworth, has also made her career. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes. Zoe, well, I was just, I'm just thinking, yeah, well, sorry. I, I was just wondering if, there's, if there was just something, one other kind of question I had about this. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, Tom, do you think there's just an element perhaps of 
sort of personality. I mean, I always think that at any given time in history, a certain proportion of the population will be especially prone to conspiratorial thinking. And it almost has, yes, it's okay, it's influenced by social media, it's influenced by various other, you know, culturally specific things. But do you think that there's just, some people are just born naturally inclined to interpret what's just happened in, with COVID-19 as as a sort of example of governments trying to surveil us and get one over us. And there are others who, like you and me, just simply don't get it. I mean, we're very critical thinkers. We're the first to critique any kind of, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm very suspicious of states and state control. And um, I, you know, I, I, but, but I just think it's all crap. And I just wonder if, you know, I didn't have to think, I suppose what I'm saying is I didn't have to think about that. It just seemed obvious to me. And I just wonder if actually, Laura Doddsworth was just born this way and, and all her followers were just born that way. <laughs> like, actually, like Lady Gaga. Yes, exactly. And I just wonder how much control any we have of, you know, how much could how much possibility there is for people thinking better at any given time, because it seems like people are just naturally prone to certain ways of thinking and others aren't. Whether, I don't know whether it's about, as I say, natural affinities, although there maybe is something about psychological profiling. Conspiracy theory tends to kind of take root at times of political complexity. You know, it's nearly always a way of trying to simplify situations that seem otherwise difficult to comprehend. You know, it's part of the reason why, dare I say it, the French Revolution is a key moment in the development yeah. of conspiracy theory. Um, but I think also in an era of globalization. You know, people, you know, she struggles to understand the interconnected nature of the world. And so those connections start to seem nefarious. I mean, there's a moment where she says that the reason that the, you know, that one of the first outbreaks happened in Italy was because Italy was supporting the geopolitical policies of the Chinese government. I mean, it's mad. It's completely mad. But it's a classic way of looking at phenomena that, you know, she might struggle to understand the relationship between these things and believing, oh, there must be a connection. You know, there, yeah. there must be some way that it all kind of hangs together. So I think it is to do with the increasing remoteness, complexity, interdependency of world politics that's that's leading to this hunger for kind of easy answers or sort of like some sort of underlying architecture that might explain how it all fits together. Yeah. One last thing I'd say, she says, obviously, you know, that this whole thing was exaggerated, but on the very first page of the book, she acknowledges that vaccines were developed, and I quote, with miraculous speed. Yes, it was nigh on miraculous that scientists were able to do this. And the reason that Boris Johnson was terrified and everyone else was terrified was that it's very, you know, it wasn't probable that we would have had a vaccine within a year. Um, it's yeah. only because of the work that had been done on SARS in advance that sort of prepared the way. Um, so to think that, I mean, again, again, she's just not willing to, to think about the fact that even if you distrust the government, surely I hope you and I have got some trust in scientists and we trust scientific bodies. Um, and we trust, you know, we believe in things like the, you know, Center for Disease Control. And so well, on. sadly, like, we I, don't. I mean, we do. But I think much of her followers are anti, you know, they like look at Lawrence Fox, anti-vax. So they don't believe scientists. They see scientists as part of the, the sort of, you know, fear industrial complex. Yeah. Um, Which goes back to, again, weird readings of the 20th century in that they'll talk about, you know, science and the Holocaust is never far away from their example or science yeah. being used for experiments on racial minorities and so on. So yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's this sort of cherry picked vision, a dystopian vision of 20th century history that's being used as a way of kind of, you know, disaffiliating from the experts. Now, after that very balanced conversation, Zoe, where we really tried to kind of do Dodsworth her due, um, just to wrap up, uh, Zoe, why the hype? 
Well, sadly, I think the hype is quite depressing. I mean, I think the hype, because there is a fairly substantial contingent of people here who genuinely think Britain is like uniquely repressive, even though it's way less repressive than any European state um, just over COVID-19, not to mention Asia or Australia. Um, and there are people who are too confused to engage with more complicated politics. So this is a really easy thing for them to latch onto. So I think she, I think interestingly, if she's complaining about fear, she's tapping into or capitalizing on confusion and anger um, and, and a sense of meaninglessness. And she's, you know, it, it's, it, if you give people a coherent, not that this is that coherent, but if you give people a way of um, harnessing their loneliness and their uncertainty against a huge, big, bad um, edifice, then they will take it. Uh, and it's just so ironic because she's actually trying to engender a state of fear herself. That That's why pe people are reading this to be like, oh my God, I'm scared because we live in this repressive totalitarian regime. So no. she's used the exact same method that she pr she pretends the government has used to sell this book. And that's why the hype. What do you think, Tom? Zoe, I think you stole my line. I was going to say there's a lovely bit in the book where she says fear sells better than sex. You know, and she yeah. talks about fear porn. But this book is itself a piece of fear porn. It's just mm -hmm. the thing that she wants you to be frightened about is authoritarianism. Yeah. Uh, you know, and as a result, you know, it, it, but it is absolutely swimming in the same waters that the people who are governing us have got much more sinister motives and you should be very frightened of them. Um, the one other thing I would say is that, of course, she argues COVID hasn't been so bad. Um, you know, it was all exaggerated. Well, it hasn't been so bad precisely because of some of the measures that we're taking. And yeah. she does not want to think about the situation, for instance, in Brazil right now. If we yeah. were to be looking at going on with sort of half a million deaths in Brazil, or yeah. indeed the way that the pandemic is still circling around bits of the southern US. You know, I, I think her unwillingness to think about the situation in countries that didn't take the supposedly authoritarian steps is just a further sign of the fact that this is a very one-sided rant that is speaking to a pre-existing population and um, who already want to hear what she's got to say and are not willing to read this book with any kind of critical scrutiny. I agree entirely. Join us next time for a discussion about West Side Story, Steven Spielberg's new take on the old Sondheim classic. <laughs>